This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Episode 98 of See Here Podcast. My name is Morris. I'm here in Melbourne and my partner in crime, Mr. Bernard Stickwell, is over there in Bath. Hello, Bern. Hello. And our other compadre, Mr. Tim Merrill, is on sabbatical. He'll be away for a few episodes, but we're hoping he'll be back before too long, maybe even for episode 100, which is coming up if you do your arithmetic properly in two months. But we will let him have the time off as much as he needs. But we have two other fine fellows on this episode who can, um, well, no one can really take Tim's place, but... We're going to give it a damn good try. Anyway, over from the projection booth in Detroit, the hardest working man in all of podcasting, Mike White. Welcome, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. Great to see you guys. Lovely to have you back, Mike. And I should say, as well as the projection booth, there's Rankin Bass. There's the Shabby Detective, which I'm now excited because I can find episodes of Columbo streaming Woo-hoo. through Peacock. I have to point my VPN at it, but I'm able to watch and then follow along, which is great. There's your Twilight Zone podcast. There's Did you find someone that's arranging more than 24 hours a day? <laughs> I have one of those time turners like Hermione Granger has. Well, it's not very good, is it? I always sort of figured you reminded me of Hermione Granger. God, it's the hair. Our special guest this time around, and he's probably the first person who's been on as interview subject and as show co-host. We welcome back to the program, Skiz Sizik. Welcome back, Skiz. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Now, I spoke with you a couple of months ago about a film that's a long time in the making, your documentary about Erg and Music War. Now that you've finished this current film that we're going to be talking about, Sound Mechanic, you've got all the time in the world to... To finish that off. I look forward to seeing that. The reason that you're here for uh, this episode is we're going to talk about your new documentary, Sound Mechanic. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break, play the trailer, and then we're going to pepper skiz with a whole bunch of questions and have some discussion about made-up instruments and that sort of thing. You're listening to See Here, episode 98. I was working out my issues about music. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
There's more than 12 notes in an octave, and there's just so many different sounds. And we're back. Morris here, Mike there, Bernie somewhere else over there, and Skiz sort of near Mike somewhere over there. We're here to talk about Skiz's new film, his new documentary called Sound Mechanic. It's a documentary about a fellow called Neil Feather who makes his own instruments and creates his own music. Is, is that a good summary? I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. He's also a, a performer, so he creates his instruments and then he performs with them. Congratulations on this great new documentary. And the last time that we sort of had a full episode with you as interview subject, it was to talk about your film about the Reverend Fred Lane, Ice Pick to the Moon. And his story was a lot about where music and visual arts collide. And in a way, that's also the case with your latest subject, Neil Feather, who invents musical instruments, but in a way, they're sort of also like works of art. They're visually fascinating, and he thinks like an artist and a physicist. So there's this connection of science and visual art and music. Is this going to be a running theme in your films, do you think? Uh, so far, it is, yeah. <laughs> and, and they're both sort of outsiders in a way. I mean, in Neil's case, he doesn't really seem like an outsider. He seems, well, at least here in Baltimore, he was kind of on the inside. There, there's a, a whole musical community, and he's kind of a, an important figure in it, and that, that's this sort of uh, experimental improvisational community. Whereas Fred Lane, I think it was just on the outside of everything. <laughs> But the average music listener might not ever hear music like what Neil makes. So they may never become aware of them unless they see the film. But who knows if they'll see the film. So. Well, 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 we're here to hopefully convince people that they should. So what was your original connection with Neil? We knew of each other. I don't remember how I first became aware of him. I think just when he moved to Baltimore and started performing around town and doing things around town, his name kind of stood out. Uh, his appearance stood out a little bit. His instruments really stood out. The first time I really became aware of them. I went to, it may have been a midnight screening. There was a, uh, an independent art house cinema called the Orpheum. And another artist who's sort of a hero of mine, tentatively a convenience is his name, made a feature length experimental film on 16 millimeter and it screened at the Orpheum and it featured live musical accompaniment by Neil Feather, like there in the, in the theater. And you know, I'd seen bands do music to silent films, but this was very different. And Neil was right there next to the screen playing the mid-90s version of The Mellow Cycle. <laughs> time like deciding whether to look at the screen and watch the movie or look at Neil and watch what he was doing because I, I just found him so fascinating and I also you know I loved the film I always said if I won the, the lottery I would commission a print of that movie so that more people could see it but it was a work print with all the splices and everything and I don't think many people have seen that film since then unfortunately uh, but anyway that night I became a Neil Feather fan and from that point on whenever I would see his name my interest would be aimed in his direction and I saw his name a lot 
lot because he would get grants. Like he was pretty well supported in the area. And uh, he acted in some films that I programmed over the years. And so we just sort of knew of each other because we were both doing things in town, but we, we weren't really friends. And when uh, when it was time to make another film, I actually wasn't sure if I was going to make another film after Ice Pick to the Moon because that took 20 years. But I decided, no, I kind of want to make something, but I want to do something differently. I made a, a list of rules that I was going to follow. And one of them was only shoot for one year and only do post for one year. And I was trying to think of what I could do to follow all these rules. And, you know, the idea of just finding somebody who's doing something interesting and just follow them around with a camera for a year. And I thought, well, I need to find somebody local because I don't want to be traveling all over like I did for Ice Pick. And I was like, well, who's doing anything interesting in Baltimore that I would want to follow for a year? And first person I thought of was like Neil Feather. Yeah, I've always wanted to know more about Neil Feather. He's somebody that I feel like uh, if you've never heard of him, he's still an interesting person. So I met with him. I arranged a meeting with him that was after a work happy hour at a bar where the drinks were really strong. <laughs> so I left this happy hour to go meet Neil. And I was a little inebriated, more more than used to being. So that was kind of interesting, trying to pitch him the idea of this film when I, I couldn't feel my tongue. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> the more I talked to him at that meeting, like the more interesting he got. Everything he said, I was just thinking, wow. Like, you know, when he, he mentioned uh, something about his job, and I was like, well, wait, what's your job? And he's like, oh, I'm a hearing aid salesman. I'm like, wow, I don't meet many hearing aid salesmen. He, he, he's not anymore. And and we actually at one point had a chapter in the film about him talking about it that was kind of cool, but we realized it just didn't belong there. And then he said something about his wife. I was like, your wife? I didn't know you were married. He's like, well, yeah, well, she lives in New Zealand. I'm like, you know, everything about this guy, I'm sitting there thinking the average person can't imagine being him, <laughs> you know, and that just makes him even more interesting. And, you know, this is all stuff that a lot of it isn't in the film, you know, because the film is about his instruments. <laughs> so it's like there's a lot of layers to Neil Feather that could still be explored if somebody wanted to make the, you know, I didn't want to make the documentary where I was telling his life story and telling you everything there is to know about him. I just wanted to follow him around for a year with a camera and show what he does. And that's what I ended up doing. Well, I mean, that's a big difference, I guess, between this film and Ice Pick to the Moon, where by necessity, you have to sort of go into other areas. You have to talk about the whole uh, Riddell, Riddellness, was that it? The Riddellness uh, 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 Arts Collective and Pataphysics and the whole theatre of the absurd. And this time around, you've decided, no, this is where he is now. He'll give you two minutes explanation at the beginning of the film to talk about his interest in creating new instruments and his interest in physics and music but from there on it's all about what he's doing now and i really found that quite a wonderful and refreshing approach to a music documentary it's interesting that when i was still working on ice pick and i think i had just finished hit and stay and i saw a facebook post from a guy who uh i admire who i have a lot of respect for complaining about documentary filmmakers and when are they going to get over the use of talking head interviews and archival footage and i was thinking oh man i just finished a film that's all talking heads and archival footage and i'm i'm working on one right now i'm like how else are you supposed to make a documentary? And his post,
post just stuck in my head. So when I came up with my rules of, of how to make my next film, I was thinking of him. And it, in the meantime, he formed a record label and his label was putting out the soundtrack album. So VG Plus Records, Lee Gardner is the guy. And, you know, when I met with him, I told him, I was like, you know, I made this film the way I did because of a Facebook post that you made <laughs> years ago. And he's like, oh, I'm so glad that that, you know, actually resonated with somebody. So, yeah, it was it was definitely a different way of making a film. And I actually got some criticism at a, a screening recently where somebody in the audience pointed out several times that something she wanted to see in the film wasn't there. And I <laughs> kept trying to say, if my camera didn't see it, I can't put it in the film. I wasn't directing Neil. I was just a fly on the wall. Like even the scenes in the film that might look like interviews were just me hanging out with Neil, having a conversation. And I, I just, just kept the camera rolling, fly it's, on um, the wall. It, it feels more like a portrait than an actual documentary. And I think that's something that's great. That's something to be celebrated. And I think any information, background information about Neil, his life, his art and so on, just comes up so much more organically because it's just in these little conversations that you're having whilst you're just observing. So I think it works really well. Great, thank you. Yeah, you give a lot of breathing room to things, especially there's one sequence towards the beginning where it's almost like a little mini concert. It's got the, the spinning machine that's going on, and I just love to hear how it changes as he adds mm. bits to it. And that goes on for a while, and I really appreciate that, that you get to experience this is what this man is doing, and this is how it sounds when you actually get to see these instruments being used. Yeah, that's the vibra wheels scene. my favorite scene in the film and probably the longest scene in the film. And I, I really debated, you know, there's that rule you learn in film school. You got to hook your audience in the first eight minutes or you'll lose them. And, you know, within eight minutes of the film, I'm on this scene that I think is nine minutes. <laughs> just him, like, making music with this instrument that I find fascinating. And, you know, when I started out, I really wanted to have the film be mostly the performances. Mm -hmm. yeah, because that's what I find is interesting. You get to hear the instruments, you get to see them and, and the problem I had is I didn't always have the best control over the, the where I was shooting you know so I couldn't always get the best camera angles I couldn't always get the best audio but you know there's three scenes where he's in a, a, a video studio with a black background and it's nicely lit and it sounds good that's because I got him to come into the video studio where I work and I had full control and I wish I'd shot more performances in that setting because yeah the vibra wheels thing I love that, that you know I had a really good zoom lens so I could zoom in on his fingers so I could actually see what he was doing and then having the audio stereo pan so you can actually look at the different pickups on the vibra wheels and hear which pickup is picking up which vibrator as it spins around you know, because I stereo pan them. I get goosebumps every time I see that scene especially when I've seen it in a movie theater on a big screen with really loud stereo sound I can imagine and this mm. was the, I made the film <laughs> I could have watched that scene for 90 minutes to be honest uh, it was right? tremendous, yeah. yeah. Well, I did edit it down from, you know, I think he probably, that scene was probably close to a half hour. Wow. <laughs> Unedited. Blu-ray extras, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so how difficult was sound design for this film? I was listening to this and thinking, that sounds absolutely amazing. I mean, was sound design something that you planned for or just 
you put the microphones in the right places and thought, well, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it was the sound was very important to me from the start because I just wanted people to hear these things in the best quality possible. And like I said, I didn't always have the ability to, to get the best sound. Uh, whenever possible, I got a direct line of audio and so that I'm not picking up a whole lot of room noise or else if, if I could actually place a microphone close to a sound source just to get the best audio. Uh, and it was difficult. There was a lot of scenes where you're just hearing the microphone from the camera, which is something I always tell documentary filmmakers not to do. <laughs> you know, I'm like, always get a digital recorder and have, but I didn't, you know, this was DIY guerrilla filmmaking, run and gun. You know, I didn't always have the best control, but I did have Archie Moore, who uh, this this will be my second film now where he's done the final sound mix. And, you know, I always, I've got, I've got great confidence in him that, you know, whatever I fail to do, he'll be able to fix somehow. So <laughs> and did a great job on ice pick and he did a great job on this there's one moment that i'm still not sure whether you intended to do this just this brief moment before we see i think his first live performance i can't remember who the name of the chap who he was with but we see neil playing his two-string guitar and there's a fellow who's improvising some vocals alongside of him but before we get to see inside the theater you focus the camera on a popcorn machine and we hear the popping of the popcorn and i thought to myself well i wonder if that's intended because it's something we get sound made from a traditional piece of machinery would neil have considered that a sound worth replicating musically or just setting the scene here we are in a theater or was that intended because of uh, the rest of the sounds it was meant to just set the scene but it's funny that you pointed out because in the rough cut i didn't have the popcorn sound on that shot and it really bothered me so i went into the kitchen and i popped some corn and I put my <laughs> <in there. laughs> so I, I foleyed that popcorn audio <laughs> oh funny <laughs> but the, the guy you're talking about that he's performing with that's rupert wandalowski who uh runs a really great place here in Baltimore called Normals Books and Records, which is connected to the Red Room, which is a performance space that, that Neil, actually Neil is seen in the film performing. Actually, you see the outside of Normals in the film. Yep. So yeah, Rupert yep. is a great guy. He's, he's in a group called Bullsuit Choir. He's, he's, a, he's been a staple here in Baltimore for decades. <laughs> I really appreciate your Dogma 95 approach to this one. It's nice that you gave yourself the rules to have to adhere to. Just because, yeah, I mean, I was with you through those 20 years of Reverend Fred Lane. You know, every couple of years I check it. How's, how's that going? So now to have seen you, well, not seen you because I was not around while you made this one at all. So just that you made this whole documentary and did all the posts in two years to combined. Very admirable. I'm really glad that you did that, that you gave yourself those rules i did break some of those rules oh <laughs> it took a longer a little longer than two years the goal was to shoot for one year and i actually shot for a year and a half oh, um, but i did start the post in the second year 
but I took a year and a half to do that too. And the only reason is COVID screwed everything. Um, uh-huh. You know, the summer of 2020, when I thought I was going to be editing this film, a music festival that I'm involved with, Shakemore, became a virtual event. And it became an eight-hour video virtual event that I produced. So all that time I was going to spend editing Sound Mechanic over that summer went into producing an eight-hour video <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. I eventually got back to it, though. I didn't break the rules too bad. The other rules I stuck to. You mentioned earlier, obviously, because um, Baltimore has this, this sort of interesting improvisation arts kind of scene going on. And, the, you know, the impression I got through the film is that it was a very welcoming kind of scene. I just, I, I assume that's the case. I guess, in a way, you, you're part of that as well. well. Was there any issues sort of maybe finding people to speak to or gaining access anything i mean i get the impression that it was quite the opposite but is that the case Uh, i'm not really a part of it i mean i go to some of the shows occasionally as a performer i've never been a part of that even though i've done that sort of music in other towns Mm. it is kind of a tight-knit group but it's it's large and uh, Mm. there's a whole festival that comes out of it high zero that from what i understand is one of the, the best improvisational music festivals in the world people from all over the world come to baltimore to perform at that festival Festival. I think I could have had access to just about anybody I tried to get. And, and I actually right. heard that some of Neil's friends, when they heard that there was a documentary being made about him, were a little upset that I hadn't contacted them for an interview. Oh, and I was like, well, I'm not interviewing anybody. I'm not even interviewing Neil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then I, I sort of felt bad. I was like, well, it's true that there's a lot of people that have been really involved in Neil's life and career that should probably be in the film. And I really hoped that over the course of the one year I was shooting, that I would just run into them at his performances. I kind of felt like the film isn't fully doing justice if I don't get these people in the film. But then, like, if they don't, if my camera doesn't see them, I can't put them in the film. Exactly, that's the aesthetic I, choice that you make, isn't it? So yeah, I reached out to some of them. I was like, you know, I, I really wish you'd been in this film. You know, like, I, I know that you belonged in this film, and it's a shame that the scheduling didn't work out. That Neil didn't have a show with you, or or whatever. Once they realize that it's not like a talking head interview documentary Mm. they all kind of get okay yeah that makes sense were you under the gun too as far as him moving to new zealand i wasn't in early 2020 neil started you know throughout the whole time i was shooting this i started in april of 2019 and the whole idea was hey neil whenever you're doing something let me know and i'm going to show up with a camera and if i can't show up i'll find somebody else to show up and i noticed like in early 2020 he started to have a whole lot of really good stuff on the schedule coming up i got the impression that he realized well, I was going to stop shooting this film. <laughs> and so, you know, he wanted to get all this great stuff on the schedule so that it would make it into the film. And I told him at one point, I was like, you know, that that one year rule, that's just my rule. And I can break it if I want to, because I don't have anybody to answer to but myself. And so we were talking about things that were going to be happening in May and June. And uh, like in June, there was a trip to uh, New Zealand to visit mm. Rose's wife. And I was like, well, man, I want to go along on that. I can break my one year rule to go to New Zealand. And then, of course, COVID happened and all these plans just got killed. I mean, the first thing that he did once the pandemic kicked in is the very opening of the film where he was doing a live stream for this venue in the Washington, D.C. area called Rhizome. And, you know, and that was in place of he was supposed to do an in-person performance there. So, yeah, at that point, I'm like, man, I I don't have an ending for this film. And I stayed in touch with him, you know, during lockdown. And and I met up with him a few times. I went over to a studio and had my mask on, kept my distance and just got a little more footage of him in the studio working on mostly the Mellow Cycle and the uh, contract. 
And then he said, you know, hey, my visa has gone through. I'm, I'm going to pick up and move to New Zealand and be with Rosie. They're doing stuff there. You know, they're not on lockdown. Right. And I was like, oh, there's the ending of my film. <laughs> you know? so that sort of seals it up. Um, nice. You know, he'll, I'm sure he'll be back at some point. But yeah, that gave me a nice place to stop. One of the things that I found really interesting very early on, because I was sort of wondering, what's a point of reference? And then he gave it, he said fairly early on that he was suspicious of traditional music teaching. It's traditional. He was suspicious of uh, the 12 note uh, scale. <laughs> <laughs> he cited John Cage, Captain Beefheart, and Harry Parch. And I thought, who's this Harry Parch fellow? So I went and watched a BBC4 documentary that was on YouTube. And I listened to an album called The World of Harry Parch, an album that he recorded in 1969, and a little bit of something called Historic Speech Music Recordings. And I read that when he was a young man, he dropped out of his university music degree, resenting it because he said that it held too narrow a view of what was worthy of study, basically classical music in the European tradition. Through his uh, research, he became a big advocate of microtonal music, so dividing those 12 tones that you mentioned, Mike, into 43. And I, I think it was like local band King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard did an album all on microtonal instruments like you know, about three years ago. So I think that's where I first heard about the concept. But anyway, so Harry Parch himself had modified existing instruments to work in these complete 43 tones into an octave if that makes sense but it seemed to me and i, I just sort of wanted to get you i mean you would know because having spent all this time with neil it seemed to me like the music that harry patch was creating was composed he even found a way to notate it and listening to that album the world of harry patch i, I mean it's not exactly like what I'm normally listening to with, you know, music in the European tradition or the music in the current, uh, whatever, American, Australian, English pop tradition or anything like that. But it does sound very composed. <laughs> I gather what Neil is doing is more improvised with his uh, instruments, you know, the modified two-string guitar and the wiggler, and we'll talk about those instruments as we get to them. But is that the case? Was he only so much influenced by Harry in terms of the fact that he could do this microtonal music and go take music in a different direction? I want to come back to uh, Rosie's music later on, the music that she actually composed, but was what Neil did actually improvised or did he actually say, no, no, I've got something in my head that I do the same way every time? Uh, I think a little bit of both. I mean, I, I'm sure there's moments where he's just sort of improvising and seeing what he can do with these instruments. But I do know that when, when I brought him into that video studio, you know, I was just sitting there thinking, hey, just give me five minutes on this instrument, you know, and he, he'd give me a half hour. And it's because he had in his in his mind and maybe written down somewhere a piece, you know, that, that he does on these instruments that if he doesn't get all these things done, then it's, it's sort of unfinished. It's, you know, not the complete thing. That sort of made me a little 
little nervous editing that because as a musician, and I had the same problem with uh, previous films where I was documenting musicians and I'm using their music, but chopping up their music to fit the film, feeling like, and as a musician, I don't think I would want somebody doing that to my music. And, and the, the interesting thing is when the films were done, the musicians said they didn't notice. <laughs> I was like, really? Okay. But I can't put 25, 30 minute pieces of music in the film where there would only be room for three of them, you know, and, and nothing else. Neil, he definitely improvises, but he also, you know, he's he's got a plan in mind when he starts playing. It's interesting, I guess, when he describes himself in the film, he's talking to some of the people who visit him at that sort of outdoor thing where they kind of pull up when he's got his large, I can't remember what it's called, but large instrument of some kind. And he invites people to come and look at it and play on it and talks about it and so on. But he describes himself as uh, an artist who was raised by an engineer who has an interest in physics. He doesn't really describe himself as a musician. I don't know, is it more about the process for him than it actually is the results? I mean, obviously he doesn't answer that in the film, but that's just something that you come away from the film thinking about, you know. I don't know. Uh, mm -mm. <laughs> he, uh, I mean, he's definitely a musician. Yeah, how he sees himself or, mm. or sees himself most, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure. I mean, I imagine, yeah, I can't speak for him, but I, I would imagine that he probably sees himself more as the architect of these instruments than as a musician and probably would really hope that m more other musicians would play his instruments. You know, as you see in the film, that, that finally mm -hmm. starts to happen. But then there's also the problem of, well, how do you notate how to perform on these instruments? You know, you have to come up with a, a method. So, yeah, I guess that's the stumbling block, block of getting more people to play his instruments. I mean, I guess anybody could play them and improvise, but that kind of seems like the easy way out. <laughs> you kind of need yeah. to need to write pieces for them and have people actually know what they're going to play before the, the piece starts. Which essentially is what his wife Rosie does. She composed that piece, Idiosyncrophilia. And yeah. after a whole lot of the film where we're just sort of hearing him play these various instruments and thinking, okay, well, that makes some interesting sounds. But of course, you know, being more used to music in the way that we hear every day on the radio or through our own record collections and the like, I sort of struggled, well, how would this work with other instruments? And then you present the piece that Rosie had composed. And it's not just him playing his instrument. I think he's playing the vibra wheel, but you get someone else who's playing the wiggler and someone... I Kind of, there's at least another couple of instruments that are being played by other musicians and they're combined with traditional cello players and I can't remember if they're, if they're even a horn players or something like that and put everything together and I thought it makes sense it makes absolutely complete sense So, I, I mean, I wonder how much of this was in his head or it took meeting up with Rosie, who probably, I'm, I'm guessing she'd actually sort of gone and completed a 
degree in music and she could sort of put all the pieces together. I don't know. Do they collaborate on how the overall sound for idiosyncrophilia? Do you know anything about that? I don't know much about that. I mean, I, I imagine that he's always wanted other people to play and this was an opportunity where somebody else was going to help make that happen. You know, and Rosie, like, she, she's a dynamo. Like, she does a lot of stuff. I mean, just to pull that together, I can't imagine. She lives in New Zealand and here is a, an ensemble in Philadelphia <laughs> that she's conducting. Like, how you can even make the plans for, for that performance. But yeah, I, I don't really know how the planning of that came along and, and, and how involved Neil was in it. I, I will say that's one scene where I cringe at the audio. I, I wish I'd been more prepared or could have been more prepared, but I, I got off work and ran up to Philadelphia as quickly as I could and set up to be ready to capture that performance. And, I'm, and every time I watch, I'm like, oh, I wish I'd had more microphones in the room to get better audio of that. I did get direct line from the soundboard, but the only thing going through the soundboard was uh, the wiggler and the vibrator wheels <laughs> you know? so yeah all the all the cool orchestral instruments yeah i wish i could have gotten better quality audio of them i think it sounds pretty good anyway you, you don't really notice i think unless you're actually specifically listening is it's not you know for inconsistencies or whatever it, it sounds absolutely fine i didn't really have an issue with that it was great great good to hear thank you so let's talk for a moment about some of these actual instruments. We've, you know, probably the listeners out there are thinking, what's this vibra wheel of which he speaks? What's this wiggler? The first instrument that you see in the film, and it's one that you actually sort of keep coming back to, is uh, the mellow cycle. Although I think I also saw it on Neil's website referred to as the melosipede. Uh, I'm presuming that's the same instrument. Was that something that he was working in development over the course of you making the film? Is that why you kept coming back to that? Yeah, and, and, you know, there's a lot of similar instruments with different names. I don't have a full grasp on the differences between them all. But, you know, the Melocycle was actually what I saw him playing the first time I saw him play back in the 90s. But there's been an evolution of the Melocycle over the years. And I really wanted to sort of document the process of him building something. And, you know, the only thing he was really building while I was shooting the film was this new version of the Melocycle. And that's why I keep coming back to it throughout the film to show you the progress which there isn't a whole lot of progress. He's, he's He already had most of it built by the time I started documenting it, but he was switching things around and trying different things. And so I kind of made that a little theme throughout the film. You know, the, the names, like, I realized that you know, what you described as the two-string guitar, I can't keep track of. Sometimes I thought it was called the Bachelor. Sometimes I thought it was called the former guitar. <laughs> There's a couple different names for it. And I, I finally did ask him after the film was made, and he, he explained the difference between each of them <laughs> for each name. And I'm like, wow, I, I'm glad I wasn't trying to make the definitive documentary because <laughs> I don't think I could have fit it all in. So can you describe for the listeners what some of these instruments actually are? So the mellow cycle. Yeah, the mellow cycle is like a bicycle wheel that has guitar strings on it. And when it as it's being spun, there are things that will agitate the strings. And then there are pickups that will pick up the vibrations from these strings. And uh, and then there's also other things. There's like a little there's a couple little pluckers that uh, create little pluck noises or gong sounds. And he has multiple pickups. So he's getting different kinds of sounds. And you can spin that wheel really fast or really slow. Yeah, it's, it's just kind of fascinating. The Nando, which is one of his earliest instruments, I saw it. I didn't. I couldn't imagine what it was going to sound like until he started playing it. And that's it's pretty much this big sheet of metal with a couple metal cables on it.
hit the cables. You can touch them to change the sound. He puts bars on them that roll back and forth. And he, he knows all these different ways of getting all these different sounds out of it. You know, he could get hired to do some really good horror movie soundtracks with some of these <laughs> instruments. And that one especially. I mean, I just mm. couldn't believe the sounds he was getting out of what doesn't look like much. It looks huge. But <laughs> I, I figured, well, it probably makes a really cool sound. No, it makes a lot of really cool sounds. I, oh, yeah. I'm sure he hasn't even fully explored all the different sounds that he could make with that instrument even though it's like one of the oldest ones he has at this point the vibra wheels i love those oh yeah i don't know if it's as obvious to everybody as it is to me but you know those are vibrators those are <laughs> sex toys uh-huh. i was trying to be polite i only tweaked that about halfway through the film i thought oh he is talking about vibrators isn't he okay <laughs> yeah and, and for <laughs> the viewers good. you know mm. the, these are a bunch of vibrators on wheels that spin around there's pickups i mean they're pretty much the same kind of pickups that are on electric guitars and they're spaced different places around the wheel and it, when these vibrators are on, as they go past the pickup, they create a sound. And, you know, depending on the pickup and depending on what setting the vibrators are, are on, and that some of, he's got some signals running through, it looks like a modified wah pedal. And uh, he can just get so many cool sounds out of it. And then I was blown away when he picked up the Dremel tool and touched it mm. to this wheel to make it spin faster than would have been humanly possible. <laughs> <laughs> with his hands yeah i mean it just like i said earlier that scene always gives me goosebumps because i'm like the, the potential of cool sounds that he can make with that instrument yeah i think probably one of the most fast i mean they're all fascinating instruments but the one that seemed like it had a million parts was his modification of the synthesizer i think it was the futura <laughs> Is that the one that he took out to the university open day and you push the buttons and it could make sand move in a bucket or you push a button you come up with all these genuinely different sounds and it really did seem like I think he was saying something I wanted to go backwards you know synthesizers about the latest in technology I wanted to strip all that back and make something old-fashioned like go back to the 1800s what would a synthesizer have sounded like from there I, I, yeah i found that completely fascinating yeah i had in an earlier cut i had more of the conversation of him explaining kind of the history of what existed in which year and a little bit of that still is in the film where he talks about you know how uh I forget the loudspeaker was invented in a certain year, but wasn't needed until another year. You know, and it's yeah. great that he that has all that knowledge in his head. And, you know, and then he, he puts it to use with, with this thing. And, and you know, the, the fact that this thing can make all this sound because of a nine volt battery, <laughs> you know, and which is really what it is. He has like nine volt batteries connected to these nubs. And as this thing rotates and the nubs make a connection, they send an electrical pulse to this Futura. Like, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's like, that's all there is to it. It's pretty simple. And yet this thing looks really involved and it can make a lot of different noises. And, you know, he kind of made it for these public, you know, the public can come check it out. They can push the buttons. 
And uh, it was fun. I, I went to two. Well, you, know, you see them both in the film. I went twice to visit him while he was doing the uh, public dis- display of the future. And uh, it was really fun just watching people just walking by. And here's this thing, you know, and just the looks on their faces and their reactions and, and how much fun kids have pushing buttons and making sound like you, you realize that he's putting ideas in their heads early. And some of those kids are going to grow up and do some cool stuff. But, you know, a lot of them probably won't think much of it the next day, but you can tell. Never mind the kids. Some of the adults were really getting off on that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was one of the first things that I shot when I started shooting. I, I went to his studio and he showed me the Futura. And uh, it wasn't until I was out there at the, uh, I guess it was the Arlington, Virginia Public Library, where he was showing it the first time I went. It wasn't until that shoot that I heard all the different sounds that thing could make. And I probably still haven't even heard all of them, but I heard all kinds of sounds I wasn't expecting to hear. I'm like, man, this thing, (laughs) you know, there's so many different ways to like move air to create interesting sounds. I mean, when that one part that's spinning and it's got these pipes sticking up, I'm like, okay, well, that's kind of cool. And then he starts lifting the pipes and the sound changes even more i'm like oh man he, he thought of everything <laughs> you know like so yeah that i guess that would be what a synthesizer would have been back in the 1800s he did say to you earlier on in the film and I, I think you know one of you guys already sort of pointed this out at the beginning of the film where he's talking about his father had been an engineer and so he was fascinated with the ideas of physics just not the mathematics of it but what you're describing there perfectly skiz sounds like the thinking of an engineer you know just what how can i modify this to get a slightly better sound or well this isn't quite doing what i have in my head what can i do to make it get that thing in my head with uh, some basic physics using the pickups and uh, some knowledge of mechanics and a whole lot of uh, ingenuity every time he would introduce me to a new instrument i would be like okay what's this going to sound like and how's this going to work and man the first time i heard the wiggler you know which for the viewers it's like a metal frame that has wires stretched across it and he puts metal poles between the wires and makes them wiggle you know and then he has pickups on both ends and uh you know he has different size poles he has really small I don't even know how to describe them. One one of them vibrates, so it it makes the wiggles last forever. It's really fun to watch. And, and just as fun to listen to. And, and I was just amazed when I saw it. them you, you see him moving them around like you know here it's more to the right here it's more to the left and every time he moves it it changes the sound and again you realize this looks pretty simple but it's capable of making a lot of different pitches and sounds and it's it's not like oh i built this thing and it can just do this one thing like they all seem to be able to do a lot of things the other instrument that i sort of found fascinating thought Wow, you know, uh, it was the anaplum, the bowling ball on the end of a spring with pickups and magnets doing the sand work. to 
listeners, I'm going to have to put in a few photos in the post for this, just so you can get the idea of this. But was that the uh, Anna Plum, the the bowling ball one? Wasn't the Anna Plum a different one because it was the bowling balls were kind of moving around and striking the edges of the kind of housing where the wire was coming down, whereas the Anna Plum was a, a kind of magnet on the bottom that was repelling the thing that was moving towards it. Hence, it's yeah. never plum, so it's Anna Plum. Is that right, or did I get that mixed up? It's kind of right. He, he, I mean, he calls them both. Oh. The one is the okay. smaller one that will never become plum. But then the bigger ones, he, he said he needed to make multiple anaplums for one of the grants. And that it was a happy accident that the, uh, the cable would sort of pluck itself as okay, it was swinging. Yeah. But yeah, now that you mention, I, I I do kind of wonder that because the bigger bowling ball and the, the longer cable is really the same as the smaller Anna Plum. No, it was definitely sort of functioning differently, wasn't it? Both of them incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Hearing them there. I and mean, that's another one where uh, I think the audio you're hearing is just the audio from the camera. And I, I wish I'd gotten better audio because hearing it with your own ears. Wow. Mm. You know, especially the big bowling ball, you know, which... Uh, yeah, you got to keep an eye on. You don't want to get hit by that thing. <laughs> <laughs> so just sort of coming back to the first time you went into his studio, Skiz, I mean, what was your impression? Were you like one of the kids walking into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory the first time that you saw his studio? I mean, I know that you have these shots of like how everything is in order. He has these little cabinets with all the little bits and pieces. And did you have any sense of, wow, this is amazing? Yeah, I remember thinking that like, how much time do I have? Because uh, <laughs> there's a lot here. And it's funny because I remember that that first shoot getting footage of so many little things that uh, I just never even thought about again after that, that first day. Like the uh, there's this one installation that you see in the film where it's a magnet that's moving up and it captures this metal frame thing and pulls it down and then lets it go. And then there's like a ping pong ball in it that bounces around and, and vibrates the frame. And I just thought that was really great. And you know, after that day, I don't think I ever thought about it again until I was going through the footage. And I was like, oh, yeah, that thing. Oh, that's really cool. I'm going to put that in there. I probably should have drawn more, atten- more attention to it that he, he did a lot of installations that were in museums. And that was that was one of them. But that was something that just didn't really come up much during that year. Uh, he does talk about the planets, which I, I'm pretty sure had been installations. But he also had done a public performance where people come to his studio. I didn't know about it. I didn't go. But it sounded really interesting that there was a lot more to those uh you know the balls rolling around in the in the that look like salad bowls and and symbols yeah. and so yeah it, it, you know it's safe to say there's a whole lot more to neil feather than what i i put in the film i very much enjoyed the scenes of him collaborating with other people obviously uh Rupert's, whose name i can't remember his surname now with this kind of vocalizing technique I, I love the scene with him and rosie and she's playing that it's almost kind of like a 1970s organ that you would kind of hear in an ice rink or something that i don't know if that had been modified or not but kind of the sound she was getting from that how she was playing it How he 
was accompanying her and um, I really enjoyed I think they were called Worm Eater at the end mm-hmm. which was uh, it, it was kind of like traditional heavy metal rock drumming almost and he was there with his uh, bachelor or whatever it was called on, on that day and, and then a guy rapping as well he was just really sort of abrasive and forceful and just amazing Though he quite often it seems certainly within in the you know when you captured him playing live and improvising he quite often seems to use his uh, bachelor and yet each situation sounded different yeah i just thought that was marvelous and that was a real you really captured the energy and the interest i always find with improvised music it's almost about for me personally and this this might sound a little pretentious but it's about breaking down the established barriers and trying to move through that into something else to tap into something else and I think all those performances, I could kind of get that sense from that. It was, it worked in that respect for me. I just thought they were really nice scenes. I, I do like that. The more I worked on the film, the more of the performances I went to, and I, you know, usually he wasn't the only performer. I, I got to see yeah. a lot of people. I just only shot his part. My ear could really start to tell who was using a sound making device to like do something personal or meaningful, as opposed to people that were using a sound making device to say, "Look at me." <laughs> You know, like, you know, some people are, yeah. are really good at it and some people you just kind of feel like, well, you're not really doing much with that. And it got to the point where I like every now and then there would be other performers that I would, I would be blown away by. But then meanwhile, there would be other performers where I was like, yeah, I could have skipped that. It's yeah, funny it, as well. You, you can quantify it until you actually hear it, can you? You see the performance and you hear the performance and it's either working or it's not. You're either yeah. getting that. Yeah, they're not. They're just like you say, they're making noise. Look at me. And or they're doing something. It's yeah, it's difficult to, to put into words, isn't it? I imagine it, it, it's, it would be a different reaction depending on the person. I mean, I, mm. I think about well, I mean, he talks about uh, Captain Beefheart, and I mean, my own experiences. Captain Beefheart was somebody that I wanted to hear for years. I saw those record covers, and I just never had an opportunity to hear him. And then when I finally heard them, at first I didn't like it, and I was like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm supposed to like this. And it, it bugged me for years that I don't know why don't why don't I like this? And then one day it just clicked, like just all of a sudden I I gave it another chance and I loved it. And you know I'm a huge Captain Beefheart fan now. And well, I'm like, if you don't mind me asking, what was the first album? Was it Clear Spot or was it, uh, it was Trap Mask Rep? Mask Rep. Uh, well, yeah, there's and, a difference. And you know I found <laughs> out I found out about uh, Captain Beefheart through the uh, Zappa album, the Bongo Fury. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, who's this Captain Beefheart? And I would go to the record store and I'd see you know, oh, this guy. It's got a bunch of records. And of course, Trout Mask is the, the album cover that's like, oh, this is the one I want to hear. I think I was like in fifth grade when I found out about Captain Beefheart. And I didn't actually hear that record probably for 15, 20 years. And yeah, again, I was I was a little disappointed. I thought, well, it's just kind of noisy. Like, there's not much going on here. But, you know, 10 years later, 
you know, listening to it again. And now it's like one of my favorite records, you know? So it, it's kind of like, I don't know if there was something that I went through changes or mm-hmm. you know, my ear changed over the years, or I learned to hear things differently. But I, I really think it's like certain individuals just aren't going to hear certain things as music unless they've had certain experiences. And I'm glad that I, I've had them because it opens up so much more of the world of music for me to mm. enjoy and appreciate. My music collection already, I don't have enough room for it <laughs> in my home, but there's still a lot more out there that I want to get and hear, you know, because like I have friends that are really close-minded about music. It's like, and I, I think about like a band like Pink Floyd and people are like, they would never listen to Pink Floyd. I'm like, well, I could see some Pink Floyd albums not bothering with it, but you know, there's at least a few albums in there that I would think if you're a music fan, you've got to have those albums. I'm like, no, 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 it's Pink Floyd. I'm like, I'm so glad I don't have that. You know? <laughs> I'm so glad that I can be like, music isn't black and white. There's a lot of gray in there. And I, I like the gray. Several months ago, Bernie and I spoke to a guy called Tom Sergal, who'd gone and made a really excellent documentary called Fire Music. And for anyone out there who followed that episode, that's now on the Criterion channel, if you want to um, check that oh, one wow. out. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, fantastic. No, just, yeah. just about a month ago, he announced, yeah, it's on the uh, Criterion channel. And that film was about the whole story of the free jazz movement. I think watching that film and then going up and following with listening to a whole lot more Ornette Coleman after that, because like for years, I mean, I listened to a lot of improvisational jazz, but Ornette Coleman was someone who like you were saying skiz about Captain Beefheart yeah I'm supposed to like him and I thought to myself yeah I'm supposed to like Ornette Coleman and I just didn't get him but watching that film and putting his story into perspective I went back to This Is Our Music and all of a sudden I think something clicked you know for years I didn't get into Bitches Brew by Miles Davis I didn't get that and maybe it's just something you have to grow into I don't know maybe sometime you'll never get it and that's okay too but I sort of see a good parallel between the free jazz movement and taking appreciation of experimental music that Neil Feather and who we were talking before, Harry Parch, just need to take with just a, a willingness to really listen beyond the obvious, oh, well, this doesn't mm-hmm. sound like what I'm used to. But you know, maybe that's as we get older and get more mature, then you know, we take those risks. curious to hear what Skiz is working on now. Oh, man. I should be working on that Erg documentary. (laughs) It's funny when we talked earlier about that film on the earlier episode, I was thinking, oh, yeah, I've got nothing to work on. I'm going to work on that. And since then, I started doing a radio show again. I used to do radio back in the 80s. I haven't really done much radio since the early 90s. But I got asked to get in on the ground floor of a a new internet radio station, radioplastique.com. And I started doing a show every other week called Point Me at the Sky. And I thought, oh, yeah, three hours every other week, I can fit that in. I didn't realize that I would actually put a lot more than three hours into it. I guess it's kind of like making a podcast. You guys can probably understand a podcast might be an hour long, but it takes a lot more than an hour to make it. So, yeah, I imagine a lot of the time I would have been working on that bird documentary I've been putting into my radio show. (laughs) 
but now that I realize I have a problem, I'm going to try to budget my time better and get some filmmaking done. <laughs> Actually, sort of just coming back to the film, was Neil happy with the final result? Uh, as far as I can tell, yeah. He actually sent me a message. We had the New Zealand premiere not too long ago, and I didn't go. But he sent me a message and something funny in his email that said something like, that feather guy seems like a pretty nice guy or some, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, oh, good. I'm glad he, he feels that he came off well in the film. I can imagine if a filmmaker approaches you and says, I want to follow you around with a camera, like you really have to trust that filmmaker. I'm glad he trusted me, and I, I, I hope I, I did him well. So for the listeners out there who are thinking right well this sounds all fascinating but where and when can i watch this film is this going around on the festival circuit is it imminently going to be on a video on demand streaming service a dvd physical media what's the story with that uh it's currently sort of doing the festival circuit i decided i wasn't going to submit it to a whole lot of film festivals just because you know i don't feel like it belongs there i don't feel like film festivals are going to want it and i think if the ones who do it might kind of get buried it's just not the kind of film that, that I see going over well at film festivals. But it is screening at film festivals, and it's doing one-off screenings here and there. And I do hope to tour it, kind of waiting for the, the soundtrack album. You know, the pressing plants are so backed up right now, so mm. I have no idea when this album is going to actually arrive. But once it does, I'm kind of hoping to go on tour with the film and be able to sell the album at the shows. And yeah, I'd, I'd love to put it on a, a DVD with, with extras, you know, include those full performances from the video studio. And then eventually make it available for streaming. I'm sure if anybody that's a Ice Pick to the Moon fan is listening, they're like, well, when can we see that on streaming? Here's my problem. I, I am very much a DIY filmmaker, and I don't think a lot of people understand what that means. Like, DIY means do it yourself. So I do everything myself. I don't like handing things over to a distributor. I'm not out to make money, but I don't want to lose money. And if somebody's going to make money off my work, I want to make sure that I'm getting a majority cut of that. So me and distributors, it doesn't work. These are people that are going to make money off my film. I'm not going to see much of it, and they're not going to do much with my film that I couldn't just do myself. But that also puts a big workload on me. So that's the reason why Icepick isn't streamable yet, is because I haven't found a platform where I'm happy with the degree of the money that I would get. You know, I just don't want somebody else making a whole lot of money off my work if I'm not making a whole lot of money off of it. So <laughs> So I, you know, sooner or later, I'll probably put both films on Vimeo. Give me five bucks, watch my film. Vimeo will take a mm. cut of that. That's probably what will end up happening. But in the meantime, physical media is still very much alive. Buy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. We all have shelves. You can put it on the shelf. <laughs> Episode 99 of See Here. We actually know what's happening with episode 100, but not going to say that. I will say that Mike White is coming back for episode 100. And if I remind him in time, uh, Will Smith, The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, will be joining us for episode 100. Because in a way, it was a film that he watched that 
made me think, yep, we got to do that for episode 100. Uh, that'll be a round table. But next month will be another interview. But before we go into that, Mike, what's happening with the thousand podcast? What's happening? <laughs> Is there a theme month for next month for July? Yeah, Sci-Fi July, baby. Uh, we're going to be talking about Code 46, the Michael Winterbottom film, uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yeah, we've got a couple of really good things lined up. I'm excited for people to hear it. Morons from Outer Space is another one that's coming up. So, oh, some, some oh classics. God, I haven't seen that in about 35 years or something. I saw that at the cinema. I remember going to see that at the cinema. Wow. Yeah, I only got to see that on VHS. It only lasted about a week here in the cinema. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it even played theatrically here in the States. I'm, that That's part of my research. Did that happen? So, uh, some gold. And next month's episode of The Shabby Detective, which I am really, really super enjoying. I'm loving that you're getting these interviews with people who've been writing about Columbo. Oh, uh, one thing I almost forgot. And nice to see that here in 2022, someone is remembering Columbo and the great Peter Falk and all these big name guest villains. The kids love it. The, the kids demand it. They're just like, we want to hear about this 70s detective. Please give us a show. And of course, I listen to the people because that's what I do. As, as Terry Frost would say, you are a river to your people. <laughs> and what else have you got? You Rankin Bass. And- yeah, I just watched The Ivory Ape last night. And we've got an episode on the Bushido Blade that's still in the works. I uh, actually have interviews for that one, surprisingly enough. So that will be... Uh, a good time and then uh yeah we've got the life and times of captain barney miller podcast uh otto bruno the author of uh, a fantastic book about barney miller he will be making a return they're going to try to have him back at least once a season to make sure that he can correct all of the things that we got wrong um, because he's a <laughs> font of knowledge and we're still plugging along with the Dreams for Sale podcast, which looks at uh, Twilight Zone 95, or sorry, 85. And boy, oh boy, did we make a mistake doing that one. And then we are <laughs> going to be switching over to Night Gallery. So we'll be uh, having a new show all about Night Gallery coming out. Now, I've never watched that, but I know that Gilbert and Frank were less than complimentary about it. But have you gone all the way through that? Are you a fan or are you going to be discovering as you go? Uh, that one I will be discovering as we go. I thought that I had seen a lot of it, but apparently I only saw the pilot. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so the one thing I remembered the most was this Roddy McDowell episode, only to find out that that was part of the three-part pilot. But this moved pretty fast. It was three little stories. It's the famous one with Joan Crawford. There's this one with Roddy McDowell that I like. And then there was another one where I was just like, wow, this is already pretty clunky. And so far, that's what I'm getting from the show. There are some glimmers of interesting things, but for the most part, it's a pretty clunky show. Will you be doing that one with Chris Stashu as well? That is Chris Stashu and Father Malone as well. So that is our replacement or our next chapter after uh, we talked about Twilight Zone 85. So a little bit backwards. Wow. Yep. As I said, the James Brown of uh, podcasting there. <laughs> uh, my Lord. And uh, you'll be back for another C here, as I said, in uh, August, episode 100, which I will reveal at the end of episode 99. But let's quickly talk about episode 99. And 
oh, by the way, Bernie, I've just remembered that we do have another interview somewhere later on this year. But apart from <laughs> apart from that, it'll all be round tables. I'm hoping to make them all round tables. Maybe we'll have to do two that month so I can keep my promise hey, to you on let's that. Just, let's just float on down the river and see what happens. It's, it's all good. <laughs> It's all good. So next month, uh, well, basically for Love That Album and See Here, it's going to be about album design cover month. July is album design cover month. So for See Here, we'll be speaking to a fellow called Kevin Hossman. He's gone and made a new documentary called The Album, and he speaks with a whole lot of album cover designers. I don't think I've watched anything that's sort of gone and focused about album art cover design. And the more I think about it, I'm thinking that could be like a hundred part series really rather than just one film so i'm looking forward to watching that and uh if there's anyone out there who is also a love that album listener i'll be speaking with a fellow called steven jurgensmeyer i hope i've pronounced that correctly who does an excellent podcast called All Music Podcast uh, Deep Dive, and he speaks to authors of music books. But his day gig is as an album cover designer, and he's made a bunch of album covers that folks out there would know for sure. whole bunch of stuff. So if you uh, want to hear some stuff about album art design, next month is the month between these two podcasts. That completes it all. You want to join the Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast we're proudly part of the pantheon network of music discussion podcasts go there to find out a whole bunch of other really wonderful music discussion podcasts i'm not sure how many they're up to now maybe 90 shows or something like that we're, they're gonna crack the ton before too long instagram yeah yes they're uh, there by hangs a tell uh, our instagram account got suspended for 30 days Oh no! Um, through a uh, comedy of errors, which actually did not involve any indecency or naked pictures, genuinely did not involve anything like that. We should be back relatively soon, so um, it is at See Here Podcast. Keep your eyes uh, peeled. We should be popping back up. Um, I would imagine in the next week or so. Maybe if you can, yeah, put up a whole bunch of photos of unusual instruments. Sure, yeah. Well, <laughs> I put up a photo of an unusual instrument, and that's why we got banned for thirty days. <laughs> Not true, not true at all. (laughs) All right, well, with that all done, I'd like to thank Mike for joining us and also Skiz, thank you so much for being part of this episode and talking to us about this fantastic film, Sound Mechanic. Hopefully it'll be uh, in your face before too long. If you can't see that, then certainly there are a ton of uh, film clips on YouTube. Just go searching up Neil Feather and has him, like, just other things of him demonstrating his instruments, stuff that's not from Skizz's film that'll tide you over until Sound Mechanic is out and I'll be sure to put something in the Facebook group uh, once the film is available but hope you enjoy this discussion anyway it whets the appetite so until next month all the best cheers cheers cheers